0: immigration should not be considered in a partisan way because there are way more economic benefits to immigration. If you don't care about the humanitarian aspects of it, and some people don't, and that's their own choice, I'm never going to appeal to them with any of my humanitarian reasons. But if you just look at the economic reasons, immigration makes sense from an economic point of view.
1: That was Fiona McEntee, American immigration attorney, and I'm Martin Nutty. And I'm John
2: Lee. Welcome to another conversation for the Global Irish Nation on Irish Stew. Today's episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Oam Art, where you can find original prints, jewelry, home decor and custom gifts featuring Oam, the first written form of the Irish language. Visit omart.com and that's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com. And listeners can save 20% at omart.com using coupon code Irish Stew. That's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com.
1: Hi, this is Martin Nutty on the Irish Stew podcast, conversation for the global Irish nation. And I'm delighted to be here once again with my co-host, John Lee. John, uh, tell us who we've got coming up on the show. Hey,
2: thank you, Martin. Well, you know, first of all, I want to mention that uh, I realize you're not just a, a digital presence. We actually saw each other today in person, uh, which was quite a rare event as you were passing off the book of uh, one of our future guests. So uh, good good to get a chance to see the legend from the east side of town.
1: Yeah, I'm just a legend <laughs> in my own mind, I think, you know, rather than anybody else's. But, you know, if, if you want to inflate me, that's cool. You know, I'll go with that. There you you go.
2: Well, you're, you're, you're the executive chef of uh, Irish Stew. And, and today, adding to the stew uh, from Dublin, now Chicago, we have uh, Fiona McEntee, and she is, well, you know, she's been on CNN, MSNBC, CBS, BBC, RTE, but now she has reached the pinnacle of the media world. She is joining us here on Irish Stew. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you so
0: much. I am honored to be here.
2: Yeah, we're going to get into a big, big topic today, and then we're going to also find out about uh, cause kind of how you got from here to there. But the topic, the word is immigration. You're uh, a noted immigration attorney, and I can't think of a word right now that's more charged in the political landscape than immigration. You know, you think of uh, in America, I think the image you immediately go to the uh, the wall along the border in Europe. Maybe it's the visions of the the migrants crossing the Mediterranean in, in rubber boats, but mm. there's a it's, there's a lot more dimensions to immigration. There's a lot more almost day to day business aspects of immigration. What do you think is the biggest, maybe the biggest thing that people don't understand about the topic of immigration?
0: I mean, I think you did a good job of characterizing the the current. Um, I guess, you know, it's always probably been quite political, but I think it's been really brought to the forefront over the past few years i mean certainly with the prior administration immigration was like the number one thing that was on the kind of the chopping block almost since you know from the campaign trail of of donald trump into the presidency and so i think kind of what we do became a bit became way more mainstream in terms of like media stuff i mean the presidency uh, of trump started out with all the um all of us attorneys at airports in in um you know, throughout the US and that's kind of how I started doing my media stuff was from O'Hare Airport um, on the first day of the Muslim ban. Um, and so, yeah, it's it, it's been really just, I think, a central topic of conversation around dinner tables across the U.S. Maybe before it hadn't really been that way. Um, and I think now with the pandemic, right, the whole thing about mobility of people and travel and stuff like that is very much a, an issue of immigration as well. So um, I think, uh, yeah, I think maybe before the Trump presidency people just were not really aware of, of the practice of immigration law as, as kind of its own entity. And I think now, um, you know, people know a little bit more about what we do on a daily basis.
2: Well, you, you've, got, uh, you've got a very personal connection to the immigrant story, being an immigrant yourself. So let me turn you over next to our resident immigrant, <laughs> crypto Irish-American Martin Nutty.
1: You're using all sorts of fancy <laughs> words today, John. That's usually your uh, thing, but... Crypto-American? You know, that sounds quite sinister, <laughs> like I'm engaged in something totally nefarious. But uh, I'm actually delighted to have a, a fellow dub on on the show today. And I find it fascinating, Fiona, that you have gotten involved in immigration law. It's hardly a practice in Ireland of great significance, although that seems to be changing in recent decades. But I'm curious as to the backstory, mm-hmm. uh, Dublin to Chicago, how does that happen? Yeah. How do you get involved In this business.
0: Yeah well likewise Martin about the do- up the dubs it's always nice to to meet a fellow dubliner um i so you're totally right though about that uh, when i started um studying law in UCD at home so it's university college dublin for those not familiar with the acronym but um so i started studying there and i got an opportunity to go on an exchange program to um, a law school in Chicago um, when I was only 20 and it was a part of my, would have been my third year in law. Was, yeah, third year in, in studying law. Um, and I've always had an interest in social justice issues, even from before I even started studying law. And my dad's, I kind of tell people that my dad's nickname for me has been Save the Wales from when I've been about mm-hmm. eight years old. Like I was always, you know, we'd be having conversations around dinner and i'd be talking about the union workers and you know the rights of the traveling community in ireland and all that kind of stuff and, and environmental issues and so i i thought i'd do like environmental law or something like that but immigration wasn't even a course that was offered in ucd at the back then nobody knew i didn't i didn't even know about it myself but when i went over to college here for a year um, I, I started, I saw it on the class list and, and I started, you know, kind of special, like I took a class in immigration law. Um, and so I was here for a year basically in, in college and then I went back to UCD, graduated and then came back out to do a Juris Doctor. And it was actually during that time that I, I found immigration law and fell in love with it straight away. I mean, I think it kind of ticked a few of the boxes that I, you know, that were really important to me. It was a social justice thing and it was something that I could really relate to having moved from Ireland to the US. Um, and I mean, I had no idea it would turn into the the practice that it is today, but I have been practicing in this field um, for 13 years or so, my whole career as an attorney and then working in it before I um, graduated from law school as well.
1: I'm curious, right? I came to America in 1983. That was a very kind of different economic situation in Ireland compared to the Ireland that you graduated from in the early 2000s before the financial crisis. In other words, the possibility of, of, of making a decent living had then become a reality. And actually, you do see the starts of immigration into Ireland at that point as a result. So what spurred you to leave since economics probably wasn't as much the driver? Uh, why come to Chicago at that point?
0: Yeah, yeah, you're totally right. And I think we've seen the the kind of emigration from Ireland in, in different waves and different economic circumstances. And, and that has definitely been part of the Irish story. And when I left, so I had come for that one year and, and really... I fell in love with Chicago, but also the way of practicing law here is different. I mean, if you think about how the legal profession is set up in Ireland, it's barrister and solicitor. It is very, also, I mean, I was the first person to go to college in my family. Like my parents are from big, you know, t- typical big Irish family. They were small business owners. They worked really hard, but they never got the opportunity to go to college. So we didn't come, I didn't know any lawyers at home. I didn't have any family connections. Um, and um, a lot of the people I was studying law with in Ireland, their dads were judges, their mums were barristers, you know, and, and I didn't have that. And that's not why I left. But, it, you know, America seemed kind of different. It seemed like, you know, that you didn't necessarily know people who or people who were in your class didn't always come from a legal background and I loved the idea of the unified legal profession so just a lawyer not a barrister not a solicitor um, and so that was actually appealing to me from a career point of view um, and when I was here that first year I'd worked for the state's attorney's office I'd clerked in that and I just felt like I could make a I, yeah I just thought there might be some good opportunities even at a young age um And I guess I was right. It worked out, you know, pretty well. But that was one thing about the legal profession here that really appealed to me. That was different to to the legal profession at home.
1: So what are your class in, in Ireland? How many actually fetched up over here? Are you the lone wolf and in, in, in the in the crew
0: <laughs> i've always taken the path less traveled but um so for for that exchange program that we went on there were there were seven of us from u c d that came to chicago um and there have been you know over the years probably hundreds right when you think about it there were seven each year that came to Chicago, but then there was other law schools as well that people went to there was one in Minnesota. Um, there, you know, there's been a few others, I think, added since. So there've been hundreds of exchange students that have come over the years. But from my year, there's myself and my friend Alan Devlin, who is a lawyer. He's like a leading antitrust attorney in, in just outside of Washington, D.C. So myself and him stayed on. Um, and there've been a few since, but um, not that many. I think a lot of people do end up just coming for the year and, and going back home, which obviously, you know, people find paths that suit them. Accordingly, but myself and alan it's it 's funny that the two of us out of that that class of seven that ended up in Chicago are still in the u s
2: you know Fiona you were you know you 're pursuing immigration as a career and you 're living an immigrant life at the same time and I wonder how those two play off each other, and also we talk to a lot of people who come over to the states to get their feel for you know, the sort of changing perception of what it was to be Irish in Dublin versus what it is to be Irish in Chicago. And of course, uh, we've concentrated with a lot of Irish Americans in the New York area, but Chicago is one of the great Irish uh, centers. They die the river green, maybe up until this year. I'm not sure on St. Patrick's Day, but maybe you could kind of talk a little bit about that sort of being an immigrant while working in immigration and the experience of being Irish in Chicago?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I tell my clients is that I have gone through the immigration process myself. And so, you know, I can totally empathize with people in situations Um I see it from a different point of view. Not, I mean, I don't know how other attorneys see it. I know how I see it. I know when people talk about wanting to travel home for um, whether it's a wedding, funerals, big things at home. I know how that feels. You know, I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen now. And I am so, so grateful that I've been able to navigate that immigration process Um but I'm also really aware of my privilege, though. I had a very privileged immigration journey. And that, I think, is 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 relevant when talking about the experience of being an Irish immigrant in Chicago. Because I was extremely welcome to Chicago in any type of setting. And I think that's, you know, I, whether it's, that's kind of how I've made so many connections in the legal industry in, in particular, because there are so many Irish American judges lawyers, um, people who've really taken me under their wing and treated me so well and treated me like I was their niece or their um, cousin or, you know, made intros for me and been really, really, really welcoming. And I think that, you know, you need to kind of view your immigrant experience, well, I do anyway, through that lens and just recognizing that I am in a huge position of privilege. And I try to use that privilege to be an advocate for for all immigrants and it's I'm really really aware of that and and I think that has kind of made me um you know maximize that privilege whether it's media opportunities or writing or whatever it is to try to to try to get people to see, you know, that the Irish weren't always so welcome in the US and that we, you know, looking at at the border today, there are so many parallels with the Irish who came here in coffin ships across the Atlantic. And, you know, they came here, they did not have an education when they were coming here. They were, you know, they were coming in really fleeing like desperate times, like from economic, like scarcity to like so many parallels with exactly what's happening at the border. And I think that some people have very short memories. And, you know, I think we have to remind people, um, there was a great, Finton O'Toole wrote a fantastic piece in the New York Times a few St. Patrick's um, days ago. And he talks about this, like, you know, kind of historical amnesia you know, where you're you're wearing your and it was particularly in the Trump administration when they were had the Muslim ban there and they were simultaneously, you know, wearing shamrock like pants and, and, you know, and kind of drinking green beer. And and his piece was like, I always quote it and remember it, you know, talk uh, where how. Memories can be really short, and you can't really in the on the one hand celebrate your heritage as being Irish, and then on the other hand, you know, not be welcoming to immigrants of today.
2: Uh, I think that's a theme we're going to develop a little bit here, uh, and just to throw in a personal note, you know, I'm also from a position of privilege. My my grandparents went through the hardship and the struggles and the turmoils of coming over here, so uh, you know, I I, I didn't experience them. Myself firsthand, but I, I have gone through the system in a sense. My, my wife is from Italy and uh, she came over on a fiance visa. And that was one of the most excruciating bureaucratic things I've ever been through. We had everything was right. There were no problems. There were no issues. And you know, I had hair at that time, so it all <laughs> got pulled out. Uh, it was it was really an ordeal until I, until we made the final hurdle, and then the last last phase of it was fine. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, we all spoke the language. You know, I, I can't imagine what it's like if you're coming in and and just not having that advantage
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: you alluded to the fact that your situation was somewhat privileged in the sense that you're highly educated and you're arriving in america and my understanding of, of immigration when we talk about immigration law there are many different ways that you can come into the country mm-hmm. so let's say people have certain in-demand talents i believe that's kind of one class of immigrant and then of course you've got the uh, sadly the uh, type of immigrant maybe that's coming as a political refugee and then you've got somebody else maybe that's in here in an und- undocumented status mm-hmm. but you know I'm just talking as a layman as opposed to somebody that really understands the the deeper areas so what kind of span of practice are you engaged in if I, you know if you look at all these various categories
0: yeah, and you're, and that's a good way to to kind of um, think about it. And there's different ways to come to the US. There's there's also temporary and permanent ways as well. So the green card is like the permanent way, and that there's different ways to do that within within those types of of there's different ways to get a green card, and then there's the temporary visas, which you know sometimes people's ultimate goal is green card, and and so I came here as a foreign student and then got sponsored by. Um, by a law firm actually as, as, um, a, for a green card. And so I've gone through the, actually the employment based immigration process, even though then I subsequently married my husband. Um, but that was the joke, you know, we were laughing about that at home. She was, they were like, Oh, the wedding's off. She's got to agree. I got my green card <laughs> through, through the, um, just before I got married to him. But, um, so yeah, I can, uh, as far as me and my day-to-day practice what I do, um so our firm there's about 12, 13 of us in the firm. We handle all types of immigration. So, um we do asylum cases as well as like deportation defense, um as well as DACA. Um but I personally do a lot of business immigration. So, I help a lot of you know, not just Irish companies but companies who are expanding into the US. I help them with that in terms of the immigration for their staff. I do a lot of extraordinary ability visas. So a lot of O1s um, I do, which is that's the O1A is for extraordinary ability in business, science. Um, O1B is arts and entertainment. So we do music visas and we do like stuff for uh, producers, directors. Um, And then, yeah, I would say the startup technology Industry um, is like a big kind of niche of ours as well. So it's pretty varied, like full service practice throughout the firm. And then we do a lot of pro bono work. We run the Irish Immigration Clinic here through the Chicago Irish Immigrant Support, which is, that's part of a bigger group of for the Coalition of Irish Immigration Centers that receives funding through the Immigrant Support Program from the Irish government. So we run the pro bono clinic there Um, it's on once or twice a month, depending on demand. And so we'll take on some pro bono cases through that as well.
2: Fiona, you mentioned the idea of people needing clearance to come over here temporarily. And I know you've worked with a lot of, you also mentioned musicians. Tell us about some of the you know, performers uh, that, that you may have worked with and helped uh, help bring over to the United States
0: yeah that's I mean really a really fun part of our job um is that we do a lot of those music type visas so we have some pretty big name clients, the Coronas or the huge you know huge household name in Ireland they've been our clients for years and years and years um and I know them personally um and so it's always such a treat getting to to work on those music cases and Our office is in a big music and entertainment studio in Chicago, so we're very kind of into the 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 music and creative technology you know spaces but what i love about that is that you know when when our clients play in chicago um we will go to see them as a team and so one thing we did when the coronas were in chicago um i organized like a special meet and greet and so we brought all you know there's all those irish american judges that i mentioned before we had them in we had like a vip like meet and greet and and um then they got to see them and meet them and hear some of their music, which is great because a lot of times people think of Irish music, you know, the view of Irish music is, you know, the traditional music and they're not really aware of this like cool indie rock scene. And that's just not kind of what they think of when they hear Irish music. Um, but that's the fun part of our job. And then they played at Lollapalooza, of which to me was like such a huge deal because I've known them since they were really really starting out and then to see them up on such a big stage um was just really special and it was just made me really proud to see an Irish band whether they're my clients or friends or not Mm -hmm. just getting to see that up there was yeah it was really really nice and um we've just we've a lot of great talent coming out of Ireland and um it's it's just nice that America gets to think of, you know, something other uh, and traditional Irish music is great. I love that too, but it's not the only type of music that comes out of our, our country.
1: Yeah. One of my um, brushes with fame actually happened quite early on in my life. A guy called uh, David Evans used to play soccer in my soccer team uh, when I was seven or eight years old. And that gentleman went on to fame and fortune as the edge, the lead guitarist at U2. Wow. And I always kind so of say
2: cool.
1: that, you know, in Ireland, there's always two degrees of separation between people. And it's kind of surprising now. David Evans, would know me from the hole in the wall. Uh,
2: <laughs> you held on to that one, Martin. Wow. I had not heard that story.
1: Yeah. It's uh just another one of the neighbours, so to speak. Oh,
0: and his name, I never even knew that was his name, I guess. I yeah. mean, does anyone even know that that's his real name?
1: Well, uh, you do. I, I, I think if you go on to Wikipedia, you can probably get that. But uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> he's just the edge. The now, edge. Of but, uh, yeah, Very cool. Usually talented guy, obviously. Yeah. But um, you alluded to the fact um, that when you came into the country that you were... Um, sponsored by your law firm after you graduated college and now obviously you have your own law firm Mm -hmm. which I think you set up fairly quickly right you didn't kind of spend like seven or eight years you know in a traditional law firm environment you went out on your own that seems Mm -hmm. pretty ballsy to me you know for somebody you know relatively young at the start of their legal profession can you talk me through that a little bit how did that come about
0: yeah, so it was actually it was the the firm that I worked with out of law school. So keep in mind, bear in mind that like I had a law degree from Ireland as well. So I've only ever studied law from when I've been 18, which is different to the American kind of law school experience where people go in at um, you know, post post a bachelor's degree. So, you know, I had all that experience as well. And um so I got hired at this firm that was a very high volume immigration practice. And um, on one I think it was my interview at the firm they had said to me that one year of practice there is equivalent to about seven years of practice in a general practice setting because of the types of cases the type of volume it was a pretty novel way of providing legal services a lot of it was done kind of online through this like their proprietary system so it meant that and we had like 14 50 clients um, and, and so like very unique immigration issues which as you know any attorney will kind of tell you like you know a, the bulk of, of kind of what we do uh, on a day-to-day basis is like issue spotting and kind of making deductions from different issues and applying the law to that and, and kind of helping clients so we were exposed all day long to these very unique issues issues in immigration and um, because of the types of cases and that the high volume nature of the practice. So, yeah. So after like two years of in that type of practice and um, it was probably equivalent to at least like as someone had said, like one year was equivalent to seven. So I had ha got so much experience in such a short period of time that yeah, shortly there then after those like two plus years, I set up my own firm and that's been what, 10, 11 years since then and going strong. But um, it, it, it's, the training that you can get when you're exposed to those types of cases um, at such an intensity and such a volume is is tremendous. I don't think I would have been able to do it had I worked anywhere else, honestly, f- for that length of time. Um, so, yeah.
1: So you, you kind of skill up really quickly um, as a result of that. But, you know, you can hang out your shingle, but that doesn't mean that suddenly people are going to come knocking on your door. Obviously, when you're in the original firm, that firm has a reputation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you set up your own firm, you're essentially starting to some degree from scratch. Now, I'm guessing some of your clients from those days probably came over, but it still you know, kind of indicates to me an entrepreneurial drive, which is probably not something that you always find in the legal profession. So why take that risk?
0: Yeah, I mean, okay, so I guess one thing... I think that's relevant to immigration and entrepreneur. I've heard immigration being described as the great entrepreneurial journey. And I think that that has always stood out to me because um, I think the type of person that emigrates to the U.S. generally is pretty motivated and determined anyway. Is, is, and that's my experience of working with foreign students and other types of immigrants is that that's a kind of a common thread um, secondly, my, my mom and dad were entrepreneurs. So we grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Um, so it is kind of second nature to me. My mom owned hair salons and barber shops and stuff like that. And I grew up from pretty young age working in my mom, and dad's news agents from when I was a young teenager, like 12, 13, I've always had a job working for them weekends. And so, um, Hard work and, and and running your own business is something that, you know, it I was kind of inevitable. I was always hopefully going to get the opportunity to do it. And so, and I think that that's another thing about the legal profession over here versus at home. It's, I think you don't hear of people setting up having solo practices as much as you would here. It, it generally tends to be done at home in more traditional um firm settings, um, is what you see typically. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I hoped that I would always set up my own business and, um, yeah, and I I love being my own boss and having a team and, you know, lead, lead, trying to be a good leader to them. But, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I thought it would happen. Um, I wanted to make it happen and thankfully I got that opportunity.
2: Fiona, you said something back there that I kind of sketched down here. Uh, issues spotting. I found that very interesting. It has mm-hmm. a kind of uh, fingers on the pulse uh, sort of feel to it. What what issues are you spotting now? And are there any hopeful, optimistic issues that you're looking at in immigration?
0: Yeah, I mean, there are so many issues in immigration right now. Um, A lot of them are, you know, pandemic related, I would say, in relation to backlogs with appointments and processing times. There's class action litigation, arrests surrounding like that with the Department of State and and things of that nature. Um, There are, you know, one thing that I see in terms of like promising, and this is something that I have been working on for about 10 years, and I'm very, very passionate about this, is Trying to get a startup visa passed for um, founders, foreign founders of startups. Um, it is a surprise to a lot of people when they hear that the US does not have a startup visa for these amazing immigrant entrepreneurs. Um, I'm not talking about like the E2 investor visa. You know, this is like specific to startup in- um, entrepreneurs who get like funding to raise funding through venture capital or angel investors or that type of thing. Like so many other countries have. A startup visa for this particular situation, and the US does not, and we are at such a huge competitive disadvantage to to because we don't have this. So a lot of times, this how this kind of flows. To just imagine what this looks like is that a foreign student comes here, um, you know, in, during school, during college the colleges have all these entrepreneurship incubator centers. So they're encouraging innovation and all that kind of stuff. And so they have an idea. They set up a company through the, you know, with the support of the school and the encouragement. Um, this this fantastic idea, whether it's an app or, you know, this or uh, loads of different creative solutions to problems that we have. Um, and then they start working on it and they get a, a, w- a one-year work permit after graduation, sometimes an extra two years if they're in a STEM field. Um, but then after that, that, there sometimes you'll find that there's no option for them to stay and continue to grow the company and it's because the existing immigration system there's been no additional options added to it like to in in 20 plus years to you know um it, kind of it, like touch on some of these things so we're trying to fit like brand new tech like type situations into like a very old system that what never even contemplated any of this type of thing so um, sometimes they're forced to abandon their startup and get a job, take a H1B, you know, a, an employer sponsored job or um you know or or leave the us and bring their startup and those jobs elsewhere and so this has formed a huge, crucial part of my advocacy for many many years there was a temporary solution that was uh, that was kind of um created during the obama biden administration but that was blocked by the trump administration and um there's still no real proper permanent solution so we think congress is going to be hopefully one of the um congresswoman w- zoe Locker Lofgren is going to be I think introducing a start, startup visa bill soon we hope and um, I think that's a huge area for opportunity because especially you know mid or post pandemic we need to have innovation in the US like if you look at the vaccines like there's so many immigrants connected to the creation of those vaccines and it is like a no-brainer it, I don't care what party you vote for or what you know a side of whatever aisle you're on this should not be a controversial you know partisan thing this should be something that we should all agree upon that we need to create some type of option to help the innovative immigrants that are here already to help them stay here and grow these companies but also to attract those who are not yet here who could be here growing those companies and creating those jobs if we gave them that opportunity
2: so it sounds like one of those many issues over the last few years where you couldn't believe there would be really two sides to the issue. You know, you'd think it would be something everybody would be for. Turns out not the case. But mm-hmm. you, you mentioned uh, uh, Obama-Biden. So let's just let's go there for a moment uh, with uh, the Biden administration. Uh, you know, I think there's certainly s- some signals, some language that, that seems to have changed what are you seeing uh what are you seeing that has been positive change so far what what still needs to be done
0: yeah i mean i think certainly there um it's it's funny that you mentioned language because i'm actually leading a panel on on this exact thing at our american immigration lawyers association at our national conference in june specifically about the biden administration's changes in relation to immigration and we we prepared a practice advisory um on this exact topic but one of the things that we did say was that yes there has been a change in language right so they're they're removing the word alien from the immigration nationality act they do not want to use the word like assimilation or the horrible i word that i'm not even going to say so there's to you know overhaul of language which is is important it's not just symbolic a language how we treat and speak about immigrants or how we speak about immigrants and the language we use is absolutely important and you know we need to restore the dignity to immigrants because the Trump administration totally stripped that away and they like completely dehumanized immigrants so language is important and i applaud the Biden administration for making those steps however it needs to be accompanied by action and you know the the Biden they have taken steps, right? Some things have been done that have, you know, been for the, um, you know, that that have improved immigration. They've, uh, you know, rescinded the public charge rule that's been taken away. That was like a horrible um, kind of, yeah, wealth test on immigrants. That was just unnecessary. And, and you know, so, so that's gone. They took, you know, they rescinded the Muslim ban. So they've done things like that. And we definitely applaud them. However, you know, Our foot is not off the gas just because there's a democratic president in there. And there are definitely still things that have to be addressed, things that are causing huge pain and suffering to our clients. And one of them is the crisis level processing times at the USCIS. So that's the agency here in the US that's responsible for reviewing cases and approving and issuing like things like work cards. So people all across the US right now are off payroll because there's a gap in their work card um, and there are things that can be done to fix that. Certain categories of work card can be automatically renewed. You know, you can, could get automatic continuous work authorization if you renew it timely. You know, that's a change that could be made to be across the board for the categories, other categories that are not included in that. Um, another thing is that, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people outside the US that are waiting for visa appointments that um, based on current processing times or lack of availability, you know, who knows when they'll be able to come in, right? There's, there's so much and look... I want to recognize that we were in a global pandemic. We are being sympathetic. We know that there's that there, you know, that the, the people are had, you know, tough times over the past year. Right. We we recognize that. But, you know, there are people who are, you know, they won the green card lottery and their chance of getting that is expiring. There are families that have been separated for, you know, well over a year who are now looking at, at God knows what type of, um, you know, backlog or timeline to get that every day day I'm inundated with all these messages just from people who are, you know, supposed to get green cards through work or H-1B visas or whatever. There's all these travel bans. And and so just to be totally clear, like nobody is saying, oh, open let everybody in. Like, who cares about the pandemic? You know, that's not at all what we're saying. What we're saying is that everybody else's job has had to be modified through Zoom and things like that because of the pandemic. So we think that there's room to do some additional, like some, maybe some interviews, visa interviews through Zoom, or there's other types of things that you can do maybe um, to try to get some of these people in and look at these travel bans. Do they make sense with a country like Ireland where there's a few hundred cases? Could we do vax- vaccinations plus plus, um, you know, negative testing? And so there's definitely room for improvement, but they're the two kind of major, big, huge th- hurdles that we're seeing right now. And then obviously, immigration reform just across the board is something that Congress absolutely needs to prioritise.
1: I think... Within our current political climate, there's a lot of hostility directed at immigrants. And I think you could kind of enumerate, you know, a variety of reasons why that might be. It seems to me that each presidential administration brings in, let's say, a certain predisposition towards immigration. Clearly, you know, we're transitioning from the Trump administration into the Biden administration. And it seems there was a sea change, I believe, under the Trump administration. Indeed, I think you alluded to it at the start of our conversation, saying your profile in the media had kind of emerged as a result of kind of dealing with the early days of the Trump administration and being out at the airport and and helping with the Muslim ban. My interpretation of what happened under Trump was simply they just wanted to slam the door shut and they only wanted Northern Europeans to come into the country. Although my sense is is that most Northern Europeans, seeing Donald Trump elected president, weren't particularly interested in coming into the country. Is that too simplistic a viewpoint or, or what would your take be? You know, when you're looking at, you know, the experience of, you know, the prior four years with Donald Trump, how hard was that from your point of view?
0: Um it was really, really, really hard. I mean, the amount of stress in our immigration bar has was unreal i mean um it, but it wasn't i mean obviously, our clients were experiencing horrendously traumatic situations as well and um, so it's obviously not about us as attorneys, but I mean just seeing the trauma that our clients were going through I mean there's literally there is moms that are petrified. Every single day when they're dropping their kids off at school, not knowing if they're going to be there to pick them up because of this like deportation force that the, you know, where they were they every single person who was undocumented was a priority for deportation under the trump administration and that is a huge change from the obama administration where there were priorities of deportations yes obama administration deported a lot way more than you know pretty you know the numbers were huge and there was obviously that administration was not perfect either but what we saw under trump we had never witnessed before i mean the type the the Absolute, like state-sanctioned child abuse that was inflicted on those families at the border by this administration is utterly disgraceful, and you know it's human rights violations that were imposed. I mean, it's horrendous, and um, but it, it's not. It was not limited to the stuff at the border, and I think that this is what a people don't necessarily know. I mean, the business business um, visa adjudications and um, denial ratings went through the roof and there was tons of litigation surround, surrounding extraordinary ability visas being denied. We sued over an O-1 denied and we got it approved. They took it back and approved it because they were, I think, embarrassed by the denial. And so it actually was not just limited to certain types of immigrants. Um, there were, you know, there was a this Buy American, Hire American executive order, which essentially you know, th- the way they Thought about immigration was just made no sense. It's like assuming you can substitute one person for another. Like, oh, you're a foreign student getting a work permit. Oh, why don't we just give that job to an American? It's like this person has a STEM degree in, you know, biophysics, and you know, there's nobody here that does these jobs. So it's I just think the way they viewed immigration is, you know, they had such a disdain for all types of immigrants is the thing. It wasn't limited to what we saw at the border. I mean, Mm. I think that that's the stuff that was that was in the media because of how horrific it was, which it should have been. But there also was there. Was this other parts of immigration that we were dealing with as well? And you know, getting clients going in for an interview where they're setting up companies in the US and they're like hiring people and they're doing all this and they're being asked questions like, Why can't an American do your job? You tell me why. And it's like, sorry, I've been like a manager of this company for four years, and I'm going in to like interview people about this proprietary software. I mean, it was just like insane. So we were dealing with all that type of stuff as well, like foreign students. Like I wrote an opinion piece that was published in USA Today on the value of foreign students, um, because of the likes of um, Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz, and all these other Republican senators saying that there was no we should there's no reason why we should give these foreign students any type of work permit. And my op-ed was like, actually, here's all the reasons. I mean, they create nearly half a million jobs just by living in the US, right? They just by virtue of being here, their presence, whether it's in the food services, um, you know, all these types of things, um, and so I think sometimes people view like for that's a good example. These foreign students, right? There was threats to deport all foreign students last year when they were studying online, and then I had people emailing me saying you know, people just like uh, tweeting at me and all this kind of stuff, like, why should we let them stay here? And if they need to study online, like, why can't they do that from abroad? And I was like, do you know how many jobs they're creating and how much money they're putting into the US economy by living here? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I had like American landlords contacting me saying, What am I going to do if these foreign students get deported? And I'm like, well, can you get in touch with your local congressperson and tell them, you know, because immigration should not be considered like this in a partisan way because there are way more economic benefits to immigration. If you if you don't care about the humanitarian aspects of it and some people don't and that's, you know. Whatever that's their own choice. I'm never going to appeal to them with any of my humanitarian reasons. But if if you just look at the economic reasons, immigration is makes sense from an economic point of view. This is why we need to pass immigration reform. It's going to be really good for the country. It'll put a huge amount of money into the federal government. Immigrants are are by def, you know by just all the statistics will show that they're more entrepreneurial than native-born Americans twice as much. And we have all the data to support this. And could you imagine if we just give those immigrants who were undocumented, the opportunity to regularize their status, what they could do um, it would be incredible. And so, um, yeah, I think that the past four years have just have really been hell. And that's like, <laughs> to put it bluntly, but um, I think people need to be aware because, you know, we could end up back there in, in, in a few years time, right? And we need to learn from those horrific, you know, things that we've gone through. And, and, and you know, we really do need to look at, reflect back on it and think, how did we get there? And, and how do we make sure that we never, ever get there again?
1: Yeah, you kind of alluded to, uh, immigration reform. Um, and obviously we're hopeful. And, and you also alluded to the fact that the law really hasn't changed in 20 years. And from what I understand, there's somewhere between 20 and 30 million undocumented immigrants in this country. I'm not sure if those numbers, you know, it's difficult to wrap your yeah. head around those actual numbers, but. When I talk to people suggesting that these people should be naturalized, I get a lot of pushback from peers, basically saying, "Okay, well, if you let these guys in, then what are you going to do to stop the next set that are going to do exactly the same thing?" Because we did this back in the Reagan administration, I guess around 1984 thereabouts, there was an amnesty, which is you know the nasty A word that people use.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What's to stop a recurrence of this? What's the sane solution? You know, for immigration into America that recognizes the value of immigration as a contribution towards the American economy. It's not all burden. Some Mm -hmm. immigration is a burden, some, but a lot is not. A lot is beneficial. I get that point. But what does the right shape of this look like?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, you there are the number that we. Here, a lot is 12 million undocumented immigrants in the mm-hmm. US. Um, and I mean, th- a, a lot of these people have been here for a very long time. I have known some of these personally, p- these people personally. I am um, know them through, as my clients They are hard working people. And um, the vast majority this is what I tell people the vast majority of those people are working, they're not sitting here. Sp- you know, living off the non-existent welfare system, they don't have access to the welfare system in the U.S. is not why people come here anyway. If they were doing that, they would obviously be going somewhere else because let's face it, it's not like, you know... So that's not why people come here. And even immigrants, undocumented immigrants, do not have access to that anyway people are working they have employers who are would do anything to help get the help them stay here you know these people are all contributing they're paying taxes despite what people are saying they're absolutely paying taxes um, i mean i have gone i've heard the most horrific stories of like people who came here you know thinking that the family immigration system it can take 30 years to sponsor your 30 40 years to sponsor your sibling you know i mean it's it's there's so uh, there's just not enough green cards to to cope with the um, the demand there. And I think that like over time, we've seen what's happened. There's also like gaps. In, and like I've described, even in the startup industry or those types of things, like the system is outdated. It is sorely in need of reform. And um, it is, you know, we need to recognize the value of immigrants, especially like in the pandemic. Like there were these undocumented immigrants. Are so, a lot of them are doing essential work. And we're more than happy to, to reap the benefits of their labor and give them nothing in return. And it's not right. And it needs to end now. And the vast majority of Americans have always supported immigration reform, despite what, you know, maybe conversations that you're having, the majority of Americans do support this. Um, And I think, you know, even the likes of George W. Bush wrote an op-ed about this. And so it is not a partisan thing. There are people that are, you know, and look I, I might be the most liberal democrat or whatever that you'll meet but I have no problem having conversations I like discussing this stuff with people who don't agree with me and I think that's what was the real shame under the Trump administration was that people were not able to have these conversations anymore because things became so polarized by you know by the types of stuff that they were doing um, but I mean I, I have always been an optimist I, I will I think a lot of my peers my immigration lawyer friends my colleagues we a lot of us share that trait because I think it's hard to go into this line of work without feeling that type of way. Um, but I believe that, you know, by having these conversations and sharing actual facts, you know, about about immigration and not like fake news or whatever you want to call it, like actual info about immigrants, that I think we can get closer to where we need to be. I think that the immigration system needs honestly huge overhaul. AILA, our Bar Association, has prepared very, very detailed policy recommendations for the Biden-Harris administration. Um, And it goes, it's it's all different types of things, whether it's, you know, options for foreign students post-graduation, reforming the family-based immigration system, and what, you know, about undocumented immigrants and what um, a pathway for for them might look like. So um, there's, yeah, I think there's extensive overhaul that needs to be done. But I think that the American public supports this. I know they do. And that I think that now is the time that we need to get it done. We can't sit back. We need to go with the momentum that we have and try and see what what we can get done. And I know that, um, Senator Durbin here in Illinois has dedicated his career to, I mean, he is just the most amazing advocate for the dreamers. And, um, you know, he has, has really done such great, great things. Um, and I know that he's deeply committed to passing the dream, um, the Dream Act, Stream, and Promise Act, and so there's other pieces of things. So I don't know how this is going to go, but I just know that we this is the time. There's never been a more important time to get this done.
2: Fiona, I heard I heard just enough optimism there that I was looking for. You know, I know it's it's a thorny problem. It's a knotty problem. It's it's heading in the wrong direction in many ways, but there's. There's things that can be done, so I, I'm, I'm gratified to hear a little sense of there, there is a way forward. Mm-hmm. And just one note, you, you talked about you know the uh, visas for uh, students, and you know I, I have a daughter in college now, and I'm keenly aware that the uh, the foreign students there, besides enriching the campus, they're paying full freight, which which is are. helping my daughter out as well. So uh, you know it's 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 a it's a There's a lot of dimensions to this. I'd like to kind of, in a way, take you out of what you're doing right now and bring you back to Ireland uh, for your, you know, kind of, this isn't the area you work in, but you you would have some uh, good perspectives. Uh, People emigrated from Ireland looking for opportunity. Now people are immigrating into Ireland looking Mm -hmm. for opportunity. How's it going? Could it go better? What's your view of uh, immigration into Ireland?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, uh, Ireland is by no means perfect either. Right. And uh, and my criticism is not specific to the American immigration system. Right. I think that we uh, we also have some work to do with direct direct provision and kind of our acceptance of um you know, refugees, societies. Um, I also think that, you know, the Irish public as a whole, I, I, I think that there have been some reports that immigrants are, you know, there is this right wing kind of fringe element in Ireland, like like in other countries that are very anti-immigrant that is extremely disturbing to see as well. Um, now, I'm glad to see that that by no means is that even half or it's just such a small fraction of the country. And I hope that it continues to just either like just decrease. But there was a great film that I saw it was a documentary. Um, I can't remember the name of it. I, I must find the name and look it up. But it was put on through, um, was it Sola Nua had put on a, a viewing of it. It's a few years old. But it was about immigrants to Ireland and kind of their experience of um, being an immigrant in Ireland, whether from Nigeria or, um, you know, Eastern Europe. And so and it was kind of their perspective. Um, and, it, it, you know, it it actually showed some some kind of some parts of Ireland and not a flattering light. And so it was it kind of highlighted this like fringe element Um I think it might just be called immigrant or I am an immigrant or something. I'll get the name and and you can send it, but it, it is a few years old. But I think it's worth it's worth watching and it's worth thinking about because What happened in the US? I mean, could that, it's happened, similar things have happened in other European countries. And, you know, Ireland is not necessarily immune from from that, just because we have, you know, a uh, very progressive, um, you know, society and a history of immigration. There are still people who when you know for whatever reason um you know it, it's not just that they feel disenfranchised and and they blame it. you know there's obviously more to it and hatred and all that type of stuff but i do think we need to watch that as well because what happened in the u.s was so scary and i think we have seen you know that type of like element through in other countries and we just need to keep an eye on it and make sure that um that we all do better and like you know the, um Black Lives Matter movement as well, you know, kind of talking to exposing racism in Ireland and, and that stuff as well, I think, is something that we need to be t- discussing as well. And what the Irish identity looks like, um, you know, just the kind of the just the different nature of Irish society, to, you know, with immigrants from all over. That's incredible. And that's we need to be embracing that and supporting that. And so I think they're conversations that we absolutely need to be having, too.
1: So you kind of talked about Irish identity, and that's something obviously uh, that is near and dear to both John and my hearts in Irish do. We kind of talk about the importance of a global Irish nation, meaning that the complete community of those Irish that have a hyphen in their name, being Irish American or Anglo Irish or whatever, and the Irish uh, native to Ireland itself um uh, are a stronger community when they're bound together. I'm kind of wondering where you're sitting in that ferment right now. Uh, do you see yourself as Irish? Do you see yourself as American? Do you see yourself as Irish or American? Where's the dash?
0: Mm. Yeah, I always find that, you know, it, it's, I found that interesting when I moved to the US, right? Because we never really, it was just kind of, I remember like sitting in in in. Like college or whatever, and someone saying, "Oh, that Italian guy, you know, such and such," and I said, "Oh, there's someone from Italy here." I didn't realize, (laughs) you know. They're like, "Oh no, he's like Italian." I was like, "Oh, what do you mean he's not from it?" You know. So I just it was it wasn't that I was. I was just more confused. I never really heard people refer to themselves. But then we, it was just a way of identifying, right? It is a way of identifying. And we do it in different ways at home. Well, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Who do you support? Like, whatever. It's just a way of kind of trying to find maybe common ground or whatever. And I think that... Um, for me, I mean, I will, I obviously will always be Irish. Um, I am a naturalized U.S. citizen. I'm so proud to be because, um, you know, I guess a whole a topic for a whole other day is the voting rights of the Irish diaspora. But I mean, for so many years, I was not able to vote anywhere, even though I was, you know, I was an Irish citizen because I wasn't living in Ireland and, and still cannot. So when I became a U.S. citizen, that was such a huge joy and privilege for me was to be able to vote um and so i definitely think of myself as 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 both i think as like irish and american and then my kids my husband is polish american so born in chicago but parents and kind of both sides of his family are are polish um so then, my kids—they're, you know—I have two little kids. They're seven and a half. The half is so important. And five, um, mm-hmm. and so they have Irish passports and they have American passports. And then they're obviously kind of Polish because my husband. So. This is kind of things that we talk to them about all the time and um, chatting about, you know, accents and making sure that, you know, that that they realize that, like, people speak, you know, sound different and it doesn't make one person better than, than somebody else. And the way I might say, like, Irish stew versus <laughs> stew, you know, <laughs> um... But I do think these types of conversations need to be had at a young age to get kids thinking about things and whether it's like privilege, diversity, just like the beauty and having people not all look and sound and, and, you know, believe the same things that we do, I think is super important.
2: I'm always, uh, you know, there's always a little tussle of with our daughter, with my Italian wife, you know. So my daughter took Italian language at college, but she took Irish literature. So we <laughs> even, sco- <laughs> even the score. Uh, this has been just great. I mean, this is such a such a vital topic, and we couldn't be talking to anybody better on this topic. Fiona, this is the part of the show that all the guests eagerly anticipate: the famous Seamus plug, where you get a chance to let our listeners know about something near and dear to your heart that you'd like to direct them to?
0: I love that, by the way. I'm all about the fun. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. Um, okay, so speaking of just kids and things like that, one thing that's near and dear to my heart is that I wrote a children's book on immigration um, my timing was not great because it came out just before the pandemic last year. And I had all these, actually had all these events, but I had two events booked in New York. Um, but uh, anyway, obviously everything got cancelled. But the book is called Our American Dream. And um, it is available on Amazon or wherever, all those Barnes and Nobles. It also is available. We have a website. It's called ouramericandreambooks.com. And I can sign books personally um, if they're bought through there also a portion of the proceeds are going to two immigration nonprofits um and so that's really important to me there's one through forward.us a nonprofit and it's the I am an immigrant initiative which helps to um celebrate just immigration storytelling and things like that and then the other is the American Immigration Council which is an advocacy group that did a lot of litigation in relation to family separation and other types of issues um so the book just kind of it, i think um Helps you talk to kids about immigration and in a way that's appropriate for them, right? It's a picture book for kids maybe like five to you know ten or whatever. And and, and so it just shares immigration stories and I think gets to celebrate this idea of welcoming and being a diverse America. Um, so that's my little plug for my children's book.
2: Fantastic. Our American Dream, everywhere five books are sold, including you can go to ouramericandreambook.com. And how, how about for your legal services? How do people get in touch with you there?
0: Yeah, so McInty Law Group is our firm. Um, so we're online, McInty Law, like, you know, every type of social media you can you, you, that you can think of. I My handles are US Visa Lawyer. So I'm pretty active on Twitter, Instagram, um, I try to do um, little Instagram videos to update people on travel bans and, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, who knows what what kind of updates are coming, but I try to do that regularly if there's any news. I know people have a lot of questions about the travel bans, so I'm happy to share whatever info I get there.
1: Fiona, I really enjoyed that conversation. I appreciate you coming on and taking the time and educating us a little bit more. Uh, hope to have the opportunity to have more conversations on this front and I'd like to thank you on behalf of our listeners and uh, hope that the whole legal profile of America when it comes to addressing these sensitive issues and immigration gets a little bit better and consequently your life gets a little bit more enjoyable.
0: <laughs> I hope so too. Thank you both for having me.
1: Thanks Fiona. Well John that was a really interesting conversation. And the one word that comes to mind when talking to Fiona for me is passion. She's passionate about what she does. But I'd like to hear what your take is. Uh, you better hear what my take
2: is here, Martin. So I had the same idea when I come off of one of these conversations. What's the one word that sticks out or a few single words? And what I landed on was advocate. Spokesperson and entrepreneur. And she's walked a mile in her client's shoes, being an immigrant herself. And she brings us a practitioner's perspective on one of the thorniest, most complicated, most politically touchy issues in America today immigration. And it's something that ranges from, you know, refugees seeking political asylum to tech entrepreneurs who want to set up and hire people in the U.S. economy, from college students to migrant workers. Very, very complex.
1: Yeah, the one thing that came across in the conversation for me was just the creakiness of the American immigration system. This is a system that has not had any meaningful change. It's not really in a position to deal with highly skilled technical workers because Back when the law was last changed, that subset of jobs really didn't exist to the degree that exists right now. And the country, as a result, is missing a beat. Immigrants are the lifeblood of America. And it's a mistake not to be constantly revising law to deal with this particular issue.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're losing things. And you you could hear the frustration in her voice sometimes, whereas her approach is very positive and upbeat. Yeah, there's obviously some frustration in what she sees and what she deals with. And you really felt The concern for her clients. And she must be a great uh, person to have in your corner when you're going through the morass of the immigration system, which you've been through. And I have been through actually to a certain aspect with my wife, Camille. So I know creaky too. It has been really, really creaky. And one last thing, Martin good to get out to Chicago. Most of our episodes have either been in New York, Ireland, or the UK. And Chicago is a great Irish center in America and great to take the trip out
1: to Chicago. Couldn't agree more and a big hello to the Midwest.
2: Well, Martin, a lot of our listeners ask uh, how they can help spread the global Irish conversation. What do you think?
1: Best thing people can do to help out the podcast is to simply share the episode. If you like what you've heard so far in this episode or other episodes, share it on social media, whether that's Facebook or whether that's Twitter or whether that's Instagram, or share it via email or word of mouth. All of those things are going to help us out. And don't be shy about dropping us a note. Uh, You can do so on our website. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahlo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com.